Thanks for tuning in, Scouts. Eric from the Dobcast here. After a bit of a summer hiatus, I'm back with Christy Shermer from Zocmelon to chat about how she evolved from having a Bachelor of Health Sciences and a Master of Public Health to now working as a successful social media consultant and trainer. In this episode, we discuss transitioning careers in the age of digital marketing, what it's like working in a niche industry area, the challenges organisations face implementing social media, when online negativity is a good thing, and more. Christy also shares what she's learning at the moment and her top tip to help you be prepared to do your best online. Hello and welcome to the Dobcast. I'm really excited to have Christy Shermer from Zoc Mellon with me here today. Welcome, Christy. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. It's also really exciting because you're one of the first people that I told that I was doing this podcast, I think, and you were very encouraging, which helped me get across the line because I was still kind of umming and ahhing about whether I should do it and trying to vocalise it with people so that I could be held accountable. Yeah. And you were just like, <laughs> yes, do, do it. it. Do it, do it. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, so absolutely knew I had to have you on the on the show as well. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Bit of an introduction. I'm going to get you to tell us a bit of your story because I shared in the very first episode how my background is not in digital marketing. I have a um, graphic design degree, but you actually have a Bachelor of Health Science and a Master's in Public Health, yet are working in social media marketing now. So, hmm, yes. <laughs> So I'll tell you about how that happened and I think for for us, for the both of us who are in the second part of our 30s, you know, there was no option for social media or digital marketing as an entry point into no. study when we left high school. It didn't exist and I think we're perfect examples of how uh, what high school students were told and are still told that the jobs that you end up doing didn't exist at the time of when we were in school. And that's certainly true for me. Um, So I left high school and fell in love with this concept of health promotion and public health, which is uh, all about community and population health as opposed to clinical care that a nurse or a doctor might treat an individual patient and who's sick and send them on their way and health promotion, public health, community health is all about thinking about whole communities and whole populations and keeping them well. So uh, re- at the heart is the concept that um, prevention is better than cure and keeping people well also saves money for governments. Okay. So investment in population health and health promotion um, make, make, means that our communities are full of people who continue to enjoy birthdays and <laughs> um, and it also means that people stay out of hospital and stay out of the uh, you know stay, stay out of their GP clinics and, and that acute care system. Um, so I really love that idea and, and a lot of the the areas in public health are um, for healthy eating, smoking cessation, uh, sexual health and, um, and infectious disease prevention, all of these things that are really important that um, when you're well, you don't even think about. So I moved into this area and did that study and um, moved and then went on to do a, a 
Masters of Public Health and um, was to still continue to be fascinated by this area. And then what happened around 2009, 2010, oh. I was working in a job where my job was to build the capacity of the youth health workforce here in South Australia where we live. And the youth health workforce, the ones who were doing that real nitty-gritty work with, with marginalised and at-risk young people, they were saying, every one of our clients is using social media. We don't understand social media and we think that this is going to be a, a really important tool for us to connect with our communities. And I agreed with them, absolutely. I was already starting to use social media on a personal level and as a health promotion practitioner, I could see that the way that uh, the opportunities for us to communicate was going ha, has going through that process of disruption. So we always talk about industries going mm. through digital disruption and the health promotion public health industry it was happening as well at that time and I could absolutely see it was happening and I thought that it's not just the youth health workforce that this is happening to it's not just young people using social media <laughs> this was going to be the case for every single health issue and every single population group because mm. I, I mean Again, it's the millennials and the young people that always get lumped into this basket of using digital and using social media. But we also know from some of the studies as well and the stats that particularly on Facebook, one of the largest growing areas of users is in the older market as well. So there's another area of people who have a lot of health concerns and health issues and needing to find information and find community around there as well yeah, as absolutely. At the other scale. And, and to combine those two concepts, we know we have an ageing population in Australia and most Western countries. And I mean, I spoke at the, um, I think it was called the Active Ageing Conference around social media and connecting, uh, using social media to connect agencies with older populations. It's, it's I mean, it's, it's, it's across all populations now. And we, I mean, we, you and I follow the, the digital stats around who's using different social media mm. platforms. Um, and that's often something that I'm asked by, um, by my industry as well but there's always some way that that you need to think about using social media as a tool to connect to go back to what happened was i could see that this uh, this this digital disruption was um, really just happening in front of our work and um, a lot of people in the public health and health promotion sector i think really were still going through a period of denial and uh, I was still getting emailed articles about why social media is a fad, <laughs> which I wish I'd kept. <laughs> I wish I'd kept those. Uh, so, I, but I just, I, so deniers, <laughs> digital deniers would email me. I feel like there me. is still a few around these days <laughs> as well. Says, yeah, that's, and, and that's, you know, it's okay to question, that's fine. But I think that it's about, okay, I think this is going to be here to stay. So what do we as an industry need to know and what do we need to do differently to uh, – to change the way that we work so that we're making the most of this new communication tool. So I ended up leaving my government job and going out as a, as a private independent consultant, started calling myself a social media consultant, which was very strange um, and still do, still find it a bit weird. And um, but 
stuck with my industry knowledge in health promotion and public health. So as a social media consultant, I really work exclusively with the public health and health promotion workforce. So most of my clients are small government agencies, whether that's typically state government or sometimes local, sometimes uh, federal government, but usually really small departments that are a long way from the kind of big main comms areas. And I also do a lot of work with non-profits as well. And usually quite small non-profits or even if they're uh, larger charities or non-government organisations, they're usually small teams or small groups or programs within those larger organisations. So um, it's usually a handful of staff where one person might be responsible for uh, the communication strategy of that team and want to incorporate a social media component as part of their overall program objectives and see that there's a role there and something that they need to learn or do or incorporate. So what are some of the biggest challenges that you're finding those people are having? Is it, I mean, because I know a lot of us work as you know, teams of one, mm, <laughs> you know, yeah. yourself and, and myself included. There might be people around us who we who we work um, with or collaborate with. But is it often that isolation that people are struggling with to make sure they've got the most up to date information or how are you I think that in that context there's a few there's a few problems I have. One is that they feel like they can't um they, they need to do everything perfectly the mm. first time. So there's often um that they put a lot of pressure on themselves to to do everything right. And I think that that comes from themselves but it also comes from often people are working in really risk-averse environments. So if they've been for years saying that they, for example, should be doing something on Facebook or Twitter and they finally get the green light, there's a huge expectation that nothing really bad or terrible is going to happen to their agency. So they really take that um, responsibility greatly for their work. Mm. Um, they, I mean, these are people who are professionals in their own right. Often people have cut, who are working in background as dietitians or uh, social workers or teachers or um, health promotion project officers or um, various roles have found themselves now have social media as a dot point on their job descriptions and have to do that as part of all of their work that they might be doing. Um, some of it might be policy work or advocacy work or some of it might be community facing or some of them might actually also be universities. So I also do uh, have as clients researchers or PhD students uh, or um, people creating programs at universities uh, and um, wanting to disseminate research that they're doing in population health to um, to to a broader academic audience or mm. to the community or to even journalists so everybody um, I think <laughs> I think if, if you think digital marketers take themselves very seriously <laughs> I think population health and public health workforce take their work very seriously as well so to combine the two it can be you know it just can sometimes feel I think a lot of pressure to get it right so that environment of having um, you know, safe. It's safe to fail. If something goes wrong, then it, that's okay. This is what you can do uh, to uh, to mitigate the risk of that. Or if this happens, this is what you can do. So one of the greatest tools that I can give to clients is a uh, an examples of standard responses on yes. Facebook. <laughs> 
and it can't you kind of realize what's the worst thing that could be said about you on your what's the worst comment that could be made on your Facebook page and then once you start realizing it's not that bad or there's things that you can do to protect yourself against that then you can um, you, you can you start to realize that these things are already being said in lots of ways. So a lot of my clients work in areas that are um, can be quite controversial. So I'm, I'm talking about clients who are working in um, needle and syringe programs or sexual health education in schools, things like that that can be quite topical or divisive issues um, that if they have a social media presence, then, you know, they're particularly concerned that negative things will be said about them or shared about them on social media. And, you know, it always goes back to what we've been saying for years, that it's far better for you to be in the room to uh, unpack some of that than to have all of these things being said about you and you're not even there to explain it or to link to some evidence or to uh, defend yourself or your organisation. Otherwise, all of these things are going to be said about you and you're, you're nowhere yeah it's almost yeah like you say much better to be in the room part of that conversation and providing some legitimate information and educating people as well because i they say like almost in the dr google type Mm, sense with uh some of these issues there'd be a lot of people who are going to the internet to seek information seek resources people who are volunteering their own experiences which are valid but from a health perspective are possibly not always going to be suitable to everyone so it opens up a huge amount of challenges there Mm. for those those industries I think what you've said with having that always kind of like you know that crisis management plan Mm. with what's the worst thing that can be said about you and preparing for the worst is definitely going to be be very very helpful to those organizations so that's really great Christine I can see how there now don't want to say that I couldn't see it before with what you did, but there is a really natural relationship between community health and health promotion and social media. And we're talking about community. You've got online communities. You're trying to engage the community. You're educating the community. And the conversation we had last week with Jen about social media strategy, we obviously touched on a lot of these areas as well with like your target audience and knowing who you're talking to, what channels they're using, what kind of content's going to engage them. But also that main overarching part of our strategy was having some aims and objectives to work towards and actually using them to kind of underpin everything that you're doing on social. So from a health promotion perspective, how do you tackle those goals and objectives online? Yeah, that's a really good question. One of the big issues that I have when working with clients is trying to match the many social media metrics that are available to everyone who who runs an, an account with to make make some sense of what's available on your social media metrics to some of the really big long-term goals of an organization so an organization in public health can have the kind of really big picture goals that their whole organization's effort is trying to achieve these can be things like increasing the amount of physical activity that adults in Australia do every day it can be something huge like decreasing the amount of youth suicide decreasing the amount of STI infections in a certain population group decreasing smoking rates all of these long-term goals are what they're working towards and it's about then choosing the social media metrics for their effort that 
indicate that they're actually making some progress towards <laughs> these huge goals. And then you, you go back to some of those really simple social media metrics around engagement or people following your page or um, often we'll look at things like sentiment for an issue and whether or not the public sentiment is positive or negative or what, um, especially if it's for a policy change or an advocacy-focused page, um, how much um, how, how much negativity there might be. And sometimes negativity can be a really good thing because it means that somebody's talking about your issue and that they care enough for there to be, you know, negative comments or things like that on a page. So, um, uh, some of the work that I do includes choosing the right metrics that indicate that there's progress being made towards your big picture goals. Yeah. Oh, that sounds really fascinating as well. I love numbers, as you know, <laughs> so that's right up my alley. Mm. Um, do they come hand in hand with a more long-term plan around social media then as well? So, I mean, a lot of businesses still kind of see social media as a bit of a silver bullet and, are, you know, might expect some quick mm. results if they start paying more attention to their accounts. But do you, do you find there tends to be that, okay, we've got these big picture goals we're working towards, these are the types of metrics we can look to measure with social, but we know we need to look at this over 12 months, 18 months, two years, as opposed to let's just do it for a couple of months? Mm, I think that uh, there's still, I still will often say things like this is not a silver bullet, this is not going to be the answer to all of the problems that you've not been able to overcome for the past 10 or 20 years to come in and and provide the solutions. Um, So I still have to do a lot of that education as part of uh, the work that I do, that this is a long-term strategy. Um, these might be some of the things you can ex- expect in the short term, but you need to plan longer-term goals that and get those goals as close as possible to your long-term overall program objectives um, as possible. So there's still a, a, lot of, a lot of that. I still think that um, social media, when it came in, for the people who embraced it, were really optimistic that this was going to be the thing that they've been waiting for <laughs> the communication tool that they've been waiting for and in lots of ways it do, it makes life so much easier so previously we you know in health promotion and public health it was traditional media so you'd see ads on bus stops and billboards and newspaper ads and um, for those lucky enough to have big budgets it would be things like tv and radio commercials but they were really the kind of golden health promotion programs that ever had were able to do anything um, that big and now with social media the even the smallest tiniest uh, small services health services whatever it might be has the opportunity to make their mark on social media and one of the things I will remind agencies of is that if they've got a really strong social media presence and following it can often be for them a protective factor against them getting cut their budgets getting cut their government funding getting cut because if they've got a if they've got an engaged and mobilized community and they make an announcement that from june 30th that they will no longer exist then their community can be off and writing letters to the minister um, sharing petitions things like that and i have seen it happen where decisions have been reversed because a strong social media following for an agency has protected them from having their funding cut. 
Wow, that's a really fascinating look at the true value of that online community. Mm, absolutely. And absolutely. I, <laughs> it's exciting. It gives you tingles. It does. It? it does, particularly <laughs> in areas. Not to say that um, the social media communities that businesses have aren't valuable, and I've done some work previously with looking um, – I worked with a business a couple of years ago that was preparing for sale and was actually kind of packaging up all of their social channels as part mm, of that and all mm. of their online stats to package in with the mm. business because this is what the potential owner could buy, which was really fascinating. But where you're actually making those changes and very important changes to the health of the community and can harness that community mm. for good and use their voices is, is really exciting as mm. well. Oh, I yay, know. yay, social media. Yeah. <laughs> Good things can happen. Good things can happen. Absolutely. Another thing that you and I have talked about offline before is how hard it is to keep up with all of the the new trends and features within social and digital these days. I've worked across a wide range of industries, but I've tried to pair it back into a few just to make it a little bit more manageable for myself. Do you find having that niche area working within health promotion and social media makes it easier to keep up with everything that's going on? I think I do. It does make it easier for me. Uh, So I feel like I almost need to, for me, I need to be an expert more so in the social media side of things because I think that's what people come to me for. And I am very much a Jack or a Jill of all trades um, when it comes to the public health side. So I feel also to some extent, a responsibility to keep up to date on the latest evidence and literature on best practice, public health and, ho- and, he- and public health and health promotion, but more so the social media knowledge, the uh, how different platforms are being used, social media trends. Um, I try and be across the, the big picture stuff and that's how I reconcile it as opposed to the nitty gritty of every little change that's happened in the back end of Facebook ads where that's I just can't keep up with everything. It's <laughs> becoming can't. such a specialist area and we've talked about that before as well. It's a yeah, the advertising aspect of Facebook is becoming quite a challenging one. I think I think so. And and I to do say that when I'm talking about Facebook ads with clients or in teaching or in, in a workshop that this is an increasingly, this is a specialised area and you can do a six-week course on Facebook ads alone and what I'm going to give you is a really general overview and enough to get you started and starting doing something so that they can go away and start actually deciding on their um, on their ad objectives and starting to think about what kinds of images they might use in text and so just enough to get to get started and answer those really basic questions about setting a budget on all that sorts those sorts of things um, I just need to really keep a, a re- this is how I've just tried to make my peace with this ongoing issue is to, if I can see the general trends and provide some big picture guidance and not stress too much about the finer details of it all, um, then I can provide some, I can provide a, a way forward or I can give a general strategic answer to a question. Where it becomes really difficult is when I'm creating online courses, online course content, which is one of the big things that I do in my business uh, is run an an e-course for the health promotion sector 
is when I'm going through and rec- making a recording or, or a screencast of something and I realise that something's changed I'm quickly learning how to do something <laughs> and then recording content <laughs> and then it changes six months later and I need to re-record. So that's, that, that is that is a tension for me as somebody who's creating uh, course content, online content, whereas when you're in a workshop you, you can kind of wing it in lots yes. of ways. It tends to be <laughs> tends to be bigger picture issues, um, as a, in the workshops that I do at least, as opposed to really hands on training. I know that your training is really practical and more of the hands on technical detailed stuff. Um, and the only time I would do that is normally in the e course environment. And I always, you know, give that disclaimer where <laughs> that this was recorded <laughs> at the and, and this was up to date at the time it was recorded. <laughs> I do feel like things just sometimes just change so quickly in our social media platforms and that probably changes that we are the only people and the only people who notice are the, are, are the are social media marketers themselves and um, most of the time people who, who wouldn't classify themselves as, as that just sort of get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading one in one of the groups I'm a part of today. Somebody had commented on a change that was coming coming to groups and asking how people were going to feel about it. And someone else had kind of commented going, well, do you think anybody who like regular Facebook users are actually going to notice this or is it more just because it was a change um, uh, relating more to administrators? Mm. So it was kind of that interesting that perspective on we do dissect all of these platforms so much and all of the features and the options, whereas the general user might often not, not notice all of those aspects of it that we tie ourselves up in knots about. Absolutely. It can be hard. We do. We do. I, I do. I absolutely stress about, you know, making sure that I've got most things up to date and I try and keep myself up to date. But it puts so much pressure. I know I put so much pressure on myself to do that. And most of the time things come and go. <laughs> yeah. No, that's the thing when something comes in and then it goes away again. Exactly. Yeah, I've it. looked at some of my old videos where I've um, recorded the screen and thought, oh, my goodness. <laughs> was actually only a year ago but that's completely <laughs> gone now you'd have some nice historical content there you can actually do a bit of a I bit could. of a backlog I on could. i've got a few it's um occasionally comes up in my memory some posts or some very old blog like how to type blog posts from six years ago when you see how different the facebook interface was yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. um well you do adding i follow your social media channels and you do an incredible job of keeping people up to date and aware of those issues within the health promotion sector. It almost seems a little bit wrong calling health promotion a niche sector as well because you've already mentioned so many facets of different agencies and organisations and advocacy groups that would all have their own unique requirements and audiences and nuances in there as well. So so well done you. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, do you find there are any main social channels that most of your clients tend to be looking for more information or guidance in? Yeah, look, I think that it, it varies greatly depending on what the issue is. So researchers and academics absolutely need to have Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, I think in particular Twitter is really important and there's been some evidence to show that when academics and researchers use Twitter that their publications receive more um, citations than 
than those papers where the authors aren't using social media. Wow. And, of course, citations are the bread and butter of researchers. So that's really important that, um, you know, that, that I think that they're using social media to its full potential to connect with other researchers and other academics to build their own profiles online. And often those researchers and academics who have a strong social media presence, they're the ones who get the keynote speaking gigs. Ah. They get called to all the cool, nerdy conferences. (laughs) Uh, So I've seen that happen as well. So um, there's a huge benefit there. Uh, Every professional, I think, needs to have a Um, rock-solid LinkedIn presence themselves. The industry is fickle. Most people are in not in permanent jobs and will have a high staff rotation, so their funding is is can be really up and down in public health. So I think that for individual uh, practitioners that they need to have uh, a LinkedIn profile that really represents them well and serves them well so that it can help with their own job security. But when it comes to other programs, it really just depends on what it's trying to do. And of course, that's your starting point is to be really clear on what your end goal is mm. and who your community is. So if you're a page or a program that where your population is the general community, then typically you'll have a Facebook presence. If your population is other researchers or politicians or other health professionals, then you might focus your efforts on Twitter. So it just depends on what each organisation is trying to achieve. And the other question that I ask that's really important is how much capacity do you have and to make decisions based on the capacity of the organisation so that you're not spread too thin, otherwise you'll just do everything kind of can be half-heartedly um so you know it just depends on how much of that how much they're actually trying to achieve on social media and what their capacity is um what their long-term or short-term goals are um i've worked with organizations who have only had a couple of years of funding and so it and, and they might still uh and they might be six months in so they're deciding on whether or not it's worth establishing a social media presence or is their effort best placed doing other work and networking in the community or providing content to uh, another organization who they might partner with and and uh, trying to get their content and their messages through an established social media page of one of their um, you know sector colleagues or sector organizations who they work with Mm. It's so important to have that overall strategy for each of the programs Mm. on their own. (laughs) Yeah, yep, yep. But if they're a long-term established page that has no um, no end in sight, and they're (laughs) you know a a big NGO with uh, with a with a ten-year vision, then they really do need to start doing some of that groundwork as soon as possible and get their strategy in place. Yeah, so you can build up so that, that so you can build up online community there. Yeah. So fantastic. And you mentioned your online courses before, so you are still consulting as well, but you've transitioned over the last couple of years to providing your services online as well. What was the kind of spur for that? Well, one of my coming from this public health background, 
a big principle, a core ethical principle, if you like, is equity. And I know that lots of organisations in the sector don't have funding or capacity to, say, fly to Adelaide for a workshop. Damn it. So, <laughs> so I now, with the, with the opportunities to provide online training, it means that you can be a tiny health service in remote Western Australia and still have access to really relevant online and online course. So many organisations are, are regional or remote and so many staff are part-time or casual. Mm, and the, the time aspect uh, is an important one so as important. well that we often and also, forget and about. The, and the funding and all, you know, all of these things are really important to me and important to the sector. And so the opportunity to do something, training that's online is a huge advantage, huge advantage. So most of my clients wouldn't be in South Australia, wouldn't be in Adelaide. They've come from across Australia and I'm hoping I'll start getting more people from overseas as well because health promotion, public health is uh, is a global industry, if you like, so people from from around the world to, to come on board. So I could see that this was going to be a huge advantage and actually fill a gap in the sector's need for best practice on using social media. And I thought that um, it would also be a really great way to just to kind of package everything in one place and uh, just a sensible business decision yes. to, to <laughs> offer online training. It's a huge amount of work. It's been more work than probably what I anticipated, but I think it's actually been the most rewarding aspect of and seeing a body of work in a in an e-course is very satisfying and then seeing people going through it and engaging with the content and implementing the content oh fantastic that's what we actually all want it's isn't it joyful <laughs> isn't it <laughs> absolutely dance. absolutely and you know hearing what people do as a result of what they've learned and can put it in place is just is is fantastic so at the moment i've got it all in in one big course which is called the health promotion social media school and for years I've been meaning to kind of section it up into different platforms so if somebody did just want to do something on Twitter they could or if they did just want to do a LinkedIn update they could and I haven't gotten around to doing that I think I've had that on my annual planning for three years and I haven't <laughs> done it so I've decided not to do any annual planning for 2019 <laughs> and just see what happens <laughs> see what happens organically um, so I imagine you've had a lot of your own learnings through this process of providing online learning and it's often, um, I know from speaking with others and, you know, those people who like to volunteer information and <laughs> volunteer opinions <laughs> that just put it on the internet, it'll be easy. Um, what, are, what are some of the learnings that you found through your online learning journey? Yeah, good question. So, again, it's, it's, you have to learn how to yourself how to how to make a piece of education an online education that you you want to have a high participation and you want to have a high completion rate mm. for that training so I work really hard to make sure that 
the course, it's continuously improving. One of the big examples of how I've improved the course over time is originally with six modules, I had one really long lecture for each of the six modules and then a downloadable workbook and then a Facebook group. But the lecture I've changed now so that instead of one really long lecture for 60 minutes, that it's divided up into a series of really short um, topics that are maybe 10 minutes long maybe less, maybe a little bit more, but not typically longer than, say, 15 minutes. That way it's a lot more easily digestible. And I know most of my clients are probably university trained and have sat through 60-minute lectures, no problem, and and got through that. Um, but these days, even professionals, we're only used to watching short videos. We, we can't can barely sit through an 18-minute TED Talk on YouTube. So I'm really <laughs> mindful that every minute of a, of a lecture that I'm doing is really well thought through. So I make sure that I actually script everything when I'm doing voiceovers of my PowerPoint presentations and I make sure that I that every word I say matters for those recordings so that I'm not repeating myself. I make sure that uh, I edit out anything that I think is too repetitive or doesn't add value to that lecture and I try and keep it as tight as possible. And I think that that means that people are more likely to achieve completing a five-minute video. As you know, I love to talking about this kind of stuff with you and other people, Christy, because it's so important just to have these conversations where we can actually learn from each other and share, particularly when we are quite isolated, whether it's within an agency or within us, you know, more of a solo business operation. We can often get stuck in our own heads and overthink things. So it's it's wonderful to be able to share these types of experiences and opinions with you and with others as well. So thank you. Uh, one of the other things that I have that's really important to me with learning is not being afraid to ask stupid questions. <laughs> I know we've we've talked about as well the types of questions that you tend tend to get asked um, by people where, where people might actually be afraid to ask you or be afraid that it's a bit of a stupid question. And you said that one of the things that people often ask is how you actually personally learnt social media given you haven't come from that traditional marketing background. So how did you manage to make the, that connection between this new medium and the health promotion area that you work in? In lots of ways, it's just something that came fairly naturally to me and that I had an interest in it. And because I had the interest and I could see this connection and the value, I was naturally curious. So I went out and started watching videos um, and following social media uh, identities and businesses. I became part of the social media community in Adelaide, which was always very generous and uh, and knowledgeable. And I learned as much as I could from both real people in real life mm. and such as yourself and also any of those sort of big identities and, and brands who are seen as social, social media leaders as well. So, and just took what I needed and then, and I still do this, take what I need and I translate that and reapply that with a public health lens and to the community and the professionals who I know might benefit from from some of that information. So it's I'm essentially self-taught and if there was a degree or something in 2010, I probably would have done it, but it didn't exist. And I don't really see the benefit in going back and doing something no. now. <laughs> um, I, I 
don't think that that I really need to at this stage. I think that I can sort of take what I need and 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 apply that. And I think that this is probably the case for many people who are who are some of the early adopters in in an industry that they'll be the self-taughts, and then there'll be a generation of people who will come through with digital marketing or social media qualifications. And um, eventually, over time, that that'll be the the knowledge that sort of leads the industry. But and we'll be some of the the oldies who, <laughs> who don't, have, who don't have that piece of paper um, but it's also a case that I find it I find it really hard to even imagine how a university could even construct a, a course with the with the way that and the pace of the social media industry it's just almost uh, I, I don't I just find it really I can't work out how a formal uh, institution like a university might even achieve that when mm. you can go and do training with Facebook and Google and it's you, you, it's actually by the creators of the platforms themselves. Yeah, and a lot of them are providing those free resources as well to help people um, self-educate for mm. those who are comfortable doing that research and self-educating or there are, you know, more practitioners such as um, yourself and, and us as well who are kind of passing on our knowledge as we go as well and and keeping up to date with the industry. So who or what inspires and motivates you? That is a good question and I know from listening that a lot of guests, both on your podcast and whenever I've heard this before, everyone always says their family, um, which is fine, (laughs) nothing against my family, but I have to say of the people who I follow, I tend to – take more seriously those who are also juggling multiple responsibilities. So I tend to be inspired more by other parents, mm-hmm. especially parents of young children, um, because I think that they there's there's more of a sense. And even, in, um, you know, the more children somebody has, the more that I'm inspired by them, <laughs> I think, because I know what they're actually managing in real life. Um, so for me, that's just who I identify with as somebody who is doing the, the juggle and the struggle of business plus parenting. And I so I often find it I, I just don't identify with you know your young male 20 something entrepreneurs I just don't think I can I just don't identify with their <laughs> stage of life um, and you know I don't identify with the that frantic hustle of working all the time it it just doesn't it's just not practical for me so it's not something that I can really be practically inspired by so but when I hear that people are trying to manage everything and uh, manage their life with their business and this is how they find that compromise and I can actually relate to that that's where I often will spend my time following those sorts of people. Yeah. And it's probably, I think you make a good point, it's important to seek those people out and follow them and for some of us maybe not follow yeah. some, of the, some of the others <laughs> who we do struggle to identify with because there are certainly some that I see sometimes or I'm, I, I think to myself it's very, very uncharitable and I'm like, you clearly don't have children. Yep. <laughs> You're managing to yep, scroll through that. your Instagram feed, nope. <laughs> No kids in sight. <laughs> Which is absolutely fine. It's fine. <laughs> but we just don't always need to compare ourselves to, to that. Yeah, absolutely. And and when I do find somebody who I think is doing amazing stuff and is doing a really good juggle, I, my next question is, okay, I need to know how much help you have 
um, how many VAs you've got on your staff. <laughs> uh, you know, all of those things. I love to know the the detail of how it actually all comes together and fits together. It's fascinating. <laughs> I guess it's human nature. <laughs> it's very like the you know, science aspect of you as well with analysing and wanting to. I think so. Understand. I think so. And it, it's been said that uh, that health promotion, public health, is an art and a science. And I think social media and social media marketing is also very much an art and a oh, science. Absolutely. So it, the, there's just so many of these kind of c- connections and um, things that those two areas have in common um often it just is so obvious to me (laughs) the connections there yeah absolutely i think the um scientific need to figure out the magic formula for making it work (laughs) have you figured it out no (laughs) sorry i haven't got it figured out and as soon as i think I've, i've made some inroads then um i'll end up taking on too much or uh you know something just goes wrong <laughs> well, when you figure it out if you figure it out let me know as well because it's something. i hope you will return the favor oh, sorry. oh i'm yeah still still trying to figure out the ongoing juggle um well in all the big ongoing juggle what are you learning at the moment? Do you have time to learn anything? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I guess our work is ongoing learning. Uh, something that I'm particularly interested in is uh, professional speaking and doing more of that sort of thing because I do like, as much as I love an online course, I also really love the real-life human connection um, and the ability to, to speak to real people in a room. And I know that's what essentially what you do you know, when you're online and um, that side of it, but when they're actual living, breathing The humans. energy is different. It's like, I mean, I do, I do some webinars and it, they can be hard mm. because you can see that people have logged on, but you don't know if they're actually watching the webinar or going to the toilet or something yeah yeah <laughs> or are they scrolling through their phone or yeah yeah I know I I totally agree and so I'm interested in in some of that side of it and I'm also interested in humor and um following uh, as an aside some comedians and speaker and speaker training people with focus ah. on humor and I think that there's a lot to be learnt on um things that will make us listen and engage to a presentation but also it might be about what you see on social media and how to incorporate uh, things that are just maybe uh, enough to make you stop scrolling and take on board something that's a different kind of funny to maybe what we're used to seeing so I'm interested in the psychology of humor and presentations and social media so that's something that I'm currently trying to learn more about. Oh, fantastic. Mm. I look forward to seeing more of that. And again, again, it speaks to that we take ourselves so seriously. (laughs) What can we do to stop this? (laughs) We do, yeah. And I think even just being real about it and talking about it and sharing and being so kind of open with how how we are feeling and and that struggle as well, but not taking it too seriously Mm. goes a little way way to helping helping that as well uh so in wrapping up if there's one skill or area that you would encourage other people to develop so that they can be prepared to do their best online what would it be one area that i have to say speaks to me from real life experience of this juggle is to 
focus on the balance between creation and consumption. So I've just said that I'm essentially self-taught in this social media stuff, but it means that at some point I am consuming more information and knowledge than what I'm creating. And I think for other social media consultants and marketers, that's an easy thing to fall into. So I think if you're able to get the balance more in the creation that you actually have more output than you've got the input, then you don't just feel like you're taking on the knowledge of everybody else in the world that you're actually doing something with it. So it means, you know, if you're going to listen to a podcast like this one, that you do something differently as a result, that you uh, it spurs on a new blog post or a new social media post or something like that. So that you're not just sort of always taking it on and you need to get it out as well you need to you need to somehow translate into something that's going to be then of service to your community whoever that is I try I don't get it right and I know I I know when it feels like it's not right because I kind of just feel like I just can't take on anything else I can't Mm. listen to any more podcasts I can't read any more blogs or do any more do anything else I can't scroll anymore (laughs) I need to do something with that. I need to have a session with a client. I need to do something where I'm providing something Mm. of value and not just giving back, taking it on. I don't know if you feel like that sometimes. You've actually just reminded me. (laughs) And this is one of those terrible things where I went through this whole like values exercise years ago and, you know, established what my values were, made some nice, pretty word art that was on the wall of my office it is now like packed up because I moved and I haven't unpacked it <laughs> but one of them was actually contribute don't just consume mm, and I've, I've literally packed that away and I feel like there is a bit of that that I do but it is very out of balance at the moment well you're producing a podcast which is a huge <laughs> gift I think I hope so <laughs> I think it's a huge gift and it's probably one of the reasons that I just I can't I just don't feel like I've got the capacity to stay do a podcast at the moment um, you're on this podcast. I'm on this one um that that's that uh, I think that it's a really big venture to to got to do that so I thank you for <laughs> doing that because yeah. it means that we can the rest of us can enjoy and watch and listen and learn and enjoy without um, the responsibility <laughs> and share of course <laughs> Um, but no, that that's been it's been really wonderful, Kristen. <laughs> and we're going to keep chatting after this. That's not going to be recorded. <laughs> but thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it, and I think there's a lot of other things that we can talk about in the future as well. If anybody wants to follow you more, we do have links in the show notes. But where's the best place for them to find out more about you, or follow you, or see the content that you are creating? Sure. Yep. You can find me at Zocmelon, which is Rockmelon with a Z. If you pop that into Google, hopefully you'll find (laughs) zocmelon.com.au. And my handle Zocmelon is across all of your major social media platforms as well. So I'd love to connect with you there and see who's been listening to Erica's new podcast. Yes, please. (laughs) And yes, like I said, um, Christy shares a lot of really useful information about a huge amount of resources in 
in the health promotion space and across social media as well. So if you're anywhere near that space or anywhere around it, absolutely recommend following. The ones I see in particular pop up a lot on Facebook and Instagram. It could be because I'm there a lot as well. So <laughs> that could be it. Thank you very, very much, Christy. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Bye. Let's have coffee. Yes. Thank you for listening to the Dobcast. I hope you feel inspired and prepared to do your best online. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you never miss an episode.